It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. And of course, as always, if this is your first time listening or you just recently started listening to us, thank you so much. We really do love hearing from you and let us know what you think of this episode or any other episodes or about anything you'd like us to cover in the future. Now, today, it was our pleasure to welcome one of Ireland's most admired journalists into the studio to talk about her three decades writing about this country. When you're working as a journalist, you just switch onto automatic pilot. And yes, the fear is there in your head, but the foremost thing is getting the story and being there on time and not being beaten by the rivals. And I am so grateful to journalism because it has made me live And it's brought me right to the edge so many times. You know, I covered the Troubles um, frequently in the North and there were some very hairy times. I went to Lebanon and I, I look back now and I've had such a privileged life and I have these amazing stories to tell. And I wouldn't have had that if journalism hadn't made me move out of my comfort zone. That was the wonderful Justine McCarthy there. And we're going to hear a lot more from her in a moment. But first, finally, the government has announced plans to hold a referendum to delete the reference in the Constitution to the women's role in the home with the date of March 8th, International Women's Day. Very good there. Likely to be the polling day. So Pat Lee, he was writing about it this week in the Irish Times. He says that it's also expected the proposal will include inserting into the Constitution a recognition of family carers and also an aspiration that the state should, quotes, strive to support the provision of care in the home. Now, apparently the proposal was discussed at a Cabinet Committee meeting on Monday and it's likely to be brought to next week's government meeting for approval because it will require an act to be passed by the Oireachtas proposing to amend the Constitution with the agreed wording before a public information campaign about the changes is undertaken by the new Electoral Commission, the state body that regulates and oversees elections and referendums. So it's likely that that legislation will be introduced to the Oireachtas before Christmas but um, the time for debate is likely to be constrained by the relatively tight timetable. If you remember, the government uh, committed to holding a referendum this year, but officials and politicians failed to agree a final wording despite several months of wrangling. Leahy reports that there was considerable anxiety among many senior politicians that a referendum campaign could turn into a debate on family, gender and gender roles. I mean, shock horror, imagine having to debate that, which politicians feared could be divisive. 
Anyway, after extensive deliberations, a citizen assembly reported in June 2021 that the constitution should be amended to refer explicitly to gender equality and non-discrimination. It also said Article 41 of the constitution, which refers to the family, should be amended so that it would protect private and family life with the protection afforded to the family, not limited to the marital family. As you know, the Article 41.2 refers to women's, quotes, duties in the home and the Citizens' Assembly suggested that should be deleted and replaced with language that is not gender specific and obliges the state to take reasonable measures to support care within the home. Uh, We've talked about it here on the podcast many, many times. Um, It's long been viewed by many as anachronistic, but agreement on how to amend it has been really hard to come by. The article in full says that the state recognises that by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. The state shall therefore endeavour to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to the neglect of their duties in the home. Oh my God, every time I read it out I just get nearly get sick. It is understood that no change is likely to be proposed to the articles which deal with the rights of the family which is defined as being based on marriage in the constitution so it doesn't look like they're going to change that even though many of us including me are in a family where there isn't any marriage but anyway they obviously don't really care. However the new wording will include recognition by the state that the provision of care by family members to each other by reason of the bonds that exist among them gives a support to society without which the common good cannot be achieved. The state, it is expected to say, shall strive to support such provision. So we will definitely have an episode all about the woman in the home, how it came to be, why it shouldn't be there. But imagine it's going to be really interesting, that referendum campaign, if there's actually people voting to keep it in. You know, that'll be just kind of fascinating to see. And I'm sure there will be the usual suspects saying that women's duties in the home are really important. And anyway, we'll have a great laugh discussing it because I'm hoping it will be voted by a vast majority to to remove it from the Constitution. But watch this space and we'll definitely do at least one episode about it before March 8th, International Women's Day. Now, Justine McCarthy is an award-winning journalist with over a dozen awards to her name and another one added to her collection this week. She writes a weekly Irish Times column every Friday, which makes for absolutely brilliant reading every single week. She has been an adjunct professor of journalism at the University of Limerick. She's the author of two books, Mary McAleese, The Outsider, that was in 1999, an unauthorised biography of the former president of Ireland, and Deep Deception from 2009 about the sexual abuse of young swimmers by their coaches, published by O'Brien Press. Her latest book, her third, is An Eye on Ireland, and it's a collection of her columns and journalism over 30 years. I was delighted to have this conversation with her. She is fascinating. She is so articulate. She's just a really brilliant person to listen to. And she has really seen this country change over the last three decades. I began by uh, congratulating my colleague Justine McCarthy about her recent award. Justine, I just want to begin by congratulating you on your Columnist of the Year Award at the National Journalism Awards. Well done. Delighted that that happened. How did that feel? Well, not your first award, I have to say. Doubly (laughs) wonderful that I won it for columns for the Irish Times because the Irish Times has always been for me the pinnacle of Irish newspapers and it's taken me an awful long many years to get here. (laughs) But I did notice reading your book that actually, and I was delighted to see it, the very first 
article you ever had published was in the Irish Times. So there's something about the thread that's finally come together. <laughs> come I think it, it was about some rowers in Trinity College that's and the right. discrimination. Exactly, and against like the that. women rowers in Trinity Rowing Club. Yeah. So I think that says it all that you, you started there and now you're here in your right um, on a Friday in the column pages and an absolutely brilliant column it is and well deserved that award. So you have a book out. It's called An Eye on Ireland and it's new and selected journalism. It's it's reading it. It's really the story of Ireland changing, I think. And we'll talk a lot about that. And you've been witness to all of that from your days as a young journalist right up to now. And it's fascinating from that point of view. But you also write an opening essay to sort of put yourself in context, I suppose. And I found it very interesting because I know you a little bit in real life, but lots of things I didn't know about you. And You always strike me from your writing as such a courageous person, someone who I feel is a bit fearless. But reading your opening essay about who you were as a young girl and the, the challenges you had to overcome, you were quite the timid person. Tell us about you as a girl, what you were like. Well, I'm still quite timid. <laughs> Even coming in here today, I had to take the stairs because I couldn't get into the lift. <laughs> so I have my phobias, but I've learned to manage them more. As a child, I was perpetually frightened of things that never happened. <laughs> um, people didn't frighten me, but the fragility of life was always something in my head. So I was terrified of planes passing overhead I was terrified. We lived on the outskirts of a town called Bandon in West Cork and there was a, a big empty mansion across the road from us surrounded by woods and I was always terrified of that house. Um, I, I, I literally was the child who was scared of the dark but I was also scared of the light and <laughs> everything else. And... Um, I, I I attribute that, Roisin, to the sudden death of my father when I was four. Um, he went out to work one day and he never came home. And I suppose there's nothing to equal that to impress on a young mind how vulnerable human life is, that you, you don't know the, the hour or the day. And um, so that, I think, has always been in me since the age of four. And and it happened at four. You actually have quite a vivid memory of of like maybe not the details, but the moment you describe people coming into the house and it's it felt like the light had gone out of everything. Yes, I think that's what you said. Yeah, I, I remember my uncle and an adult male cousin walking up the stairs in big, heavy, dark overcoats. And my sister, who's two years older than me, Adrian, and I were on the landing playing with our dolls. And I remember looking up and seeing these almost like silhouettes and they blocked out all the light. And it's as if the light stayed off then until my next memory is I was in the back kitchen of our house. We grew up in a typical country town business house. So we had a, like a big service kitchen at the back of the bar. And that's when the light comes on in my memory later that evening. And, and the walls of the back kitchen being lined with these silent men standing all around. And there were the men from the yard um, who, who actually made the coffins for our undertaking business and drove taxis. And um, so sorry, that's interesting. I mean, your dad has died and, and you make there's an undertaking business exactly. in your family. So that's yes. And um, 
like our, our family business would have buried him. Um, so that night, I remember, it was, it was a December night, so it, it's always dark outside the window in my memory. But my memory of that is following Birdie O'Mani, who was the lovely woman who looked after us four daughters, um, as she was going around pouring out tea for the men. And I can see myself following her around the kitchen saying, but what does dead mean? When is daddy coming home? And Roshan, the most amazing thing happened to me. Two weeks ago, I went to Bandon to do a book signing session in my hometown. And when I came around the corner to the bookshop, the first person I saw was Birdie O'Mahony, now aged 93, in a wheelchair, fully compass with her son, who told us that as he was growing up, he always heard from his mother about um, we four sisters and how much she had loved us. She wasn't married at that stage. Mm. And I actually told her that day that, you know, I know that when I was a child, there were moments when I was confused as to who was my mother. Was it Birdie or my mother? Because they even looked similar. They both had black hair and they wore black a lot. Yeah, so that that was a wonderful day. Yeah, that was brilliant to, to reconnect with, with her. And I'm just thinking as I'm listening to you and, and from reading it as well, I think uh, there's the germs of the writer there. Clearly, the observing was happening as a young age. You were noticing these details. These things stand out to you. And I think there's something there about writers that are noticing things. So, yes, I don't know yeah. if you feel like that, but I sort of I do remember. I, c- I can feel the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. You spoke about your mum there and how she looked like Birdie. I love that name. I presume yeah. that wasn't her real name, though, Birdie, was it? I think that I lo- might have been for sure, uh, a for pet Bridget name for Bridget, yeah. yeah. Which was my mother's name also. Oh, so the, yeah, and she was called Bride, Bride your mother. Yeah. You're right. So uh, sounds like a, an amazing woman, very attractive looking mm. woman. She had this sort of Spanish, you didn't get the Spanish looking No, jeans. I didn't. I'm like my father. <laughs> You've got this <laughs> chop of curly look. blonde hair and the freckles. Yeah. But tell me about her, because you do say in the book that she was the first feminist you ever met. Yes, but I don't think she would have realised no. that herself, uh, certainly at the time. Well, we she didn't wouldn't. use that word. They didn't use no. that word, did they? They probably didn't know no. what that even meant. And she would have been very conscious of her physical beauty and her femininity. And she loved clothes and she was glamorous. And she loved that people used to say, oh, she was like Jackie Onassis. You know, she wore Big sunglasses. I bet you have amazing pictures of her, do you? Yeah, some yeah. beautiful mm-hmm. pictures. But she was uh, she was a country girl. She grew up on a farm in East Cork in Carrick Tool. Um, she met my father in November one year. She was engaged to another man at the time. She handed back the ring to that man and got engaged to my father a month later and they were married two months later. So it was the, you know, the quintessential whirlwind romance. I think you say that he kissed her and it felt like being whacked by a combine harvester or exactly. something. That's, that's what she used to tell us. It was like being hit hit by a combine harvester, which apparently is the ultimate in romantic moments. Talk about the earth moving. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But then, um, of course, she moved to Bandon, which was on the other side of Cork City. And in those days, would have been very remote from East Cork. And uh, then suddenly found herself one day with four daughters aged from 10 down to a year old with a, a very kind of diverse business and lots of um, tax headaches. And... Um, she used to tell us that she didn't know how to change a light bulb when our father died. 
And she she had worked in the business, but front of house, the charming woman behind the bar. She used to do some of the funerals as well. Um, but now she was landed with all this administration plus four daughters. Um, and she was only 39. She was only 39. Yeah. So how did she cope with that? With great difficulty. I think she found it very lonely, first of all. Um, I do remember her saying that as a widow, she suddenly found that she wasn't invited out to social events, um, which is something I have found myself since I have been widowed. That's one of the things that hasn't actually changed very much in society. Um, she, She had a very, very good friend called Mary Taff, who, you know, was a great um, support to her. And Mary had been widowed herself in her 20s and had three sons. Um, But I think the fact that mum had four daughters made it more difficult. So I do have that column in the book about my eldest sister, Bernice, who became pregnant when she was 20. Yeah. And um, not married. And this was a scandal and it was the worst thing a girl could this do. This was 1974. 1974, like yeah. yeah. And for mum, the problem was not just how to deal with Bernice's predicament, but how to protect her three younger sisters from the stigma as well. And um, I feel terribly sad about what happened to Bernice. I absolutely idolised her. She was. She looked like my mother. She was very glamorous. She was a beauty therapist uh, working in Cork City. And she ended up going to England and having her baby. And sitting sort of sitting out the pregnancy there and having the baby and then coming back. And initially sort of hoped that even though it was this big scandal and it was a different Ireland that she might be able to keep Yes. Her she, son. she had made an arrangement with a, a woman she befriended in England um, that that woman would adopt the baby. But when he was born, Duncan, uh, she Bernice couldn't part with him. So she left the hospital and got on a plane to Cork and brought him home to Bandon. And she had him in Bandon for 10 days and realised she just wasn't going to be able to do this. Um, such was the taboo at the time. And she rang the other woman uh, who came over to Bandon and brought the baby back to England with her. And within months then, Bernice went to live in South Africa and never came home. She went there to start a new life, clean sheet. And I'm glad to say she met the most wonderful man there. And they married and had two other sons. And I'm in constant contact with them. And her first grandchild was born during the summer. And they called him Liam after my father, Billy. Because she died in her early 50s, is that right? Four days after her 51st birthday. Yeah. So he was, when Duncan made contact with us, he was just too late. We had to tell him his mum had died. But she had written him a beautiful letter um, and given it to his adoptive mum to give to him on his 18th birthday or his 21st birthday, I can't remember, and a stunning photograph of herself. So he knew she loved him and he knew that she had made the ultimate sacrifice for what she believed was you know, the best for him. And I imagine um, it's it's interesting, isn't it, Justine, that you go, you went on then to to write about 
what happened to other women in those situations, people who ended up in mother and baby homes and people in Magdalene laundries and all of that. What kind of an impression did that family story make on you as a young girl? Because you were four years younger than Bernice. Is that right? Or how, uh, I was six years younger. Six years younger. Yeah, so yeah. you would have been around 14, 14 when this was all happening. Yes. So aware of what was going on or not aware. I'm sure some of it was hidden from you. And yeah. But do you remember what impression it made at the time? Well, you know... You won't remember this, but in those days, women, girls, didn't even articulate words like sex or vagina or penis, or, you know, or toilet even. <laughs> <laughs> it was so Victorian. And for this to happen, it was a big family secret. I didn't tell anybody in school. It had a huge effect on me, first of all, because I love my sister and I missed her terribly and I was f- worried about her because when I heard she'd gone to Africa, to me, Africa was a jungle full of lions <laughs> that were going to eat her. <laughs> um, I suppose it was just like the family secret and it was something you didn't talk about. And it was a great release to be able to write about it. I talked to Duncan before I did and I said, is it OK with you? I wrote about it during the abortion um, referendum. Uh, because all the emphasis had been on a kind of a socioeconomic dimension, I felt. And I wanted to make it clear that this went right across social, uh, you know, frontiers and income levels. And that in a way, we were lucky that my family could afford for my sister to go to England and, and for my mother to go and visit her, you know, and stay with her while she was pregnant. And that if we hadn't had the money, she would have ended up in a a Magdalene laundry or a mother and baby home. And there was one very close to my school where where my sisters and I were boarders. And I was actually told at one stage you could see the fields of Besborough through the wire and the basketball court. And I remember looking out at what to me were just shapes bent over in the field one day and a nun telling me I wasn't to look at them because they were dirty women. So we were totally brainwashed. Yeah, the shame. The shame, yeah. Did it ever come into the conversation about the father of Duncan or was there any story about that at the time? Well, we knew who the father was and the father went to England with Bernice. Which would have been uh, unusual. Yes, yeah, until the baby was born. And did he get to be in touch with Duncan then? That's another good thing that came out of it. Um, After I wrote that column, um, the birth father contacted him and they they met. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. Something else came as well. And it's it's you writing about it, ventilating it after all those years had still had an effect even all those years later of them kind of having a relationship. Yeah, and I'm very conscious every time I talk about this, about that family and, you know, his aunts and uncles on that side and his cousins. I don't know how many of them know 
But I just hope I've never said anything that would add to their hurt. I think you've been very careful. Um, I just want to go back to young Justine again, who I, I, you know, came to be very fond of reading your opening (laughs) essay. Um, You wanted to be originally a dancer on top of the pops, which I think, you know, those of us who grew up in that time when Legs and Co were, a lot of listeners will remember of a certain age, Legs and Co were this dance troupe on top of the pops and you'd look at them and they were the most glamorous Beings, they weren't weren't almost like any other you, w- women that we'd ever see in our <laughs> yeah. world. So you had a fancy that maybe that would be a good job for yeah. someone who was quite scared of life, yes. just to go dancing on top of the pops. Yes, of course, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> I loved dancing, and in fact, in school, I was really lucky to have one of the greatest dancers ever as my dance teacher, Joan Denise Moriarty, the ballerina. Wow! And um, she actually used to teach us Irish dancing. My older sisters went to ballet classes with her. I didn't. I loved dancing. And somebody, when I was kind of an early teenager, told me I was too tall to be a ballerina. And I thought, great, that means I can only join Legs and Co. So, <laughs> but I actually did think it was a sort of a safe option. You know, you just go out and do a couple of dances a week and there'd be nothing scary about it. <laughs> That's kind of amazing. But then the notion of journalism got into your head because just through a random conversation, really, somebody asking, I think it was a man asking you, taking an interest in what you were interested in, what did you like doing? And you said, I like writing. Mm. When I was 16, uh, a a man from Dublin came to visit my mother, a friend of my mother's, a purely platonic friend of my mother's. (laughs) And um, we were in the sitting room and I, I, I would have been in fifth year in school at the time and he said what what are you going to do and I said I don't really know and he said what do you like doing and I said I love writing and he said well why don't you become a journalist and I said well, what do they do <laughs> and he said they write stories and I thought well that sounds wonderful I'll just write lovely flowery articles for the rest of my life so um, he went off and then that winter I had a poem published in the Evening Echo, which was read out at school assembly to my mortification. And if I read it now... I I wish you'd put it in the book. I was raging that you hadn't included it. It was inspired by a Leonard Cohen song, I think. It was inspired by Leonard Cohen's Bird on a Wire. And it's called Nowhere Land. Nowhere Land. And you can't remember any lines from it. nobody look it up. (laughs) But, But seeing your name in print, you say, made you, and I love that, dizzy with joy. Absolutely. It had the most amazing effect on me. I I instantly became a byline junkie. (laughs) So um, then I applied for a place in Rap Mines. It was the only place in Ireland where you could study journalism at the time, uh, the College of Commerce in Rap Mines. It was a two year course and uh, they only took in 24, 25 people every year. And I had to write an essay on why I want to be a journalist. So I was writing, oh, I love writing and I love books and this is my favourite book ever. (laughs) Nothing at all, I'm sure, to do with journalism. But somehow I got called up for the aptitude test and the interview. And um, it was another moment of pure white knuckle terror for me when I walked into uh, the college that day. Well, we should say uh, your mother, since your dad dying, had been on sort of various medications and tranquilizers and things. And I I think there's a moment in the in the essay where she breaks one in half and gives you half. And you say that without that half, you might not have walked in the door. for Exactly. She drove me up from Bandon. In those days, it was nearly a four hour drive. So by the time we got to the canal in Dublin, I was in an awful state. 
So she stopped the car and gave me half of the volume. And uh, then I went into Rap Mines and I was absolutely floored by the obvious sophistication of my Dublin peers all around me. There was a fellow my age sitting beside me waiting to go into the interview room in a full pinstripe suit and a, a furled black umbrella. And on the other side was a most beautiful gazelle of a girl with shiny, uh, shiny black bob hairstyle. <laughs> and um, I thought, there's no way I can compete with these. So I think my terror was amplified when I got into the room. And the only question that the panel of uh, interviewers, there were five of them. There were four men and one woman. And the men I remember were Sean Egan, who was an, uh, quite a television star at the time, presented a religious program on RT television on Sunday nights. Um, Tim Pat Coogan, of course, who was the editor of the Irish Press and really famous at that stage. John Healy uh, of the Irish Times and uh, Western Journal. Yeah. And... I, I know there was a representative from the NUJ, it might have been the General Secretary, Jim Eady. But the only question I remember being asked was the one that the woman asked me. She was a psychologist with the Vocational Educational Committee, which was the state body in charge of the college. And the question she asked me was, if I was at a football match and my boyfriend was playing, would I be jumping up and down on the sidelines, cheering and shouting for him? And Okay, when I read that, because we'll go on to say what yeah. you answered, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm sure you were just dumbfounded, first of all, because it seems like such a random question. The thing I'm just wondering is, what was she getting at there? Do you Have you reflected on it since yes. as to what she meant by that? Because it's such a bizarre question. Yeah, I think she sussed my timidity the minute I walked into the room. And thought I was maybe too shy and reserved to ever be a journalist and to ask hard questions. But it, the fact that it was the woman who asked me that question, uh, uh, it's still, you know, that really bothers me. And I was flummoxed when she asked me. And I just, uh, uh, I suppose my instant response was, well, that wouldn't happen. I'd be more likely to be the one playing the match because... Which was a great I, answer. Well, I was a hockey player and a basketball player <laughs> and a tennis player in school. Uh, but it also meant I didn't have to admit to her that I had never had a boyfriend. I had <laughs> been in boarding school with all girls from the age of six. There was no man in my family. I was terrified of the male of the species when I got out at 17. <laughs> I, mean, I just, again, I think what was so, for in her eyes, the right answer would be yes. I would That would show her that you had a bit of oomph in you, would it? This idea of yeah. you jumping up and down on the sidelines would mean that you were kind of engaged in life or that you were somehow, you know, had an outgoing personality. Exactly. And you know, the funny thing is, it's only just come into my head. I wrote a biography of Mary McAleese some years ago and I remember writing in it that when she was a student in Queen's University, her, her husband-to-be, Martin, was playing a football match in Belfield uh, well, I think it was for the Sigerson's Cup. And she got so outraged about a referee's decision against Martin's team that she uh, she invaded the football field. 
So clearly Mary <laughs> McLeese was always going to be a much better journalist than I was. <laughs> I mean, we have to tell about how you, you didn't do that well in that interview, it sounds like, because you, you were flummoxed, you were had half your volume, you went <laughs> off and you, I don't know if you get a letter or a phone call, but... I got it? a letter oh. by snail mail. So this is yeah. your first rejection letter. Yes, yeah. And it broke my heart. So they didn't want you in Rathmines. And this was the only place in the country, like you say, that you could train to be a journalist at yes, that time. Yeah. Uh, so as far as I was concerned, this was the end of my life. And from the moment I opened the letter, I cried and cried and cried. And I cried for days on end. And my poor mother was driven demented. Because, Justine, you had, um, with your lovely imagination, that is, comes very clearly from you as a young child. Uh, you had visions yourself as a journalist, like in your head, that's what you were going to be doing. Absolutely. So this was, like you say, at, at the end of something at, before it had even begun. Yeah. It was devastating. It was devastating. Um, I had no future. This was the end. I, I was going to be abandoned for the rest of my life, sitting in that armchair crying, unless my mother had gone out to the press, under the stairs, dug out, the uh, what was then the Dublin telephone directory, looked up Sean Egan's home number, found it and rang him <laughs> at night in his home and said, please, please give her a chance. I'm a widow with four daughters. She's the second youngest. She's utterly devastated. It's the only thing she wants to do in life. And I am eternally grateful to Sean Egan for changing his mind and saying, yes, we'll give her a chance. So I was number 25 to join that year in Rathmines. It's one of those stories, isn't it? It's one of those two roads diverging or your life sliding doors moment, isn't it? But, you know, I have to mention the fact your mother goes to dig out this this book that younger listeners will know. You could go and find a book where you could have everybody's <laughs> name and address and get everybody's phone number, unless they were ex-directory, but most people didn't bother being ex-directory. Yeah. It's just funny to think about it, isn't it? That and she could get Sean Egan's home number exactly. and ring him up. And then it was the most basic tool we had as journalists. Um, Absolutely. The first thing you ever did when you went to try and contact somebody or learn about them was look up the phone book. In a way, it was like an internet, really. <laughs> exactly. In its own and way. the second thing you did was you rang the, the local postmistress. Well, she knew everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then you did get in, which is your tears stopped. You stopped crying in the armchair and suddenly your future opened up again. Thanks to your amazing mother. What a thing to mm. do. I just love that. I love that um, fierceness of mothers. I think I'm going to make this happen. And somehow she did. She's down yeah. abandoned. She doesn't know any media types. She doesn't know anything about that world. Yeah. And yet she says, I'll just appeal to his sensibilities as a human. And I don't think she even approved of me wanting to be a journalist. Oh, that's even because more amazing. Like, journalists in those days were still men in dirty raincoats standing on street corners with press pass stuck in their hatband. <laughs> you know, Speaking of which, the, the very Sean Egan, when you did go, he, uh, I think in your first lecture or class, he laid out the sort of what this career was that you were all going to go into. And he said, uh, you're going to expect a very low salary. You're going to have a tendency towards alcoholism. That's in your future. You're going to die years younger than the average person. And then he asked everyone, do you still want to be a journalist? Oh, I mean, yes. What a, what a start. <laughs> like, when you think about it now, though, I mean, I'm sure they're not saying that in DCU when they're Probably telling. Probably not. No. no. But I suppose it's the invincibility of youth. He thought he was frightening us. Uh, and in fact, it just all sounded so glamorous. <laughs> I think he actually told us we would die seven years younger than the average person, mostly uh, due to alcoholism. But you made some very fast friends there. And uh, 
I, I'm still trying to make everyone hear the picture of you as this timid person, this not kind of, you know, with journalism, you have to go and you have to make phone calls that you don't want to make. You have to, you have to doorstep people. You have to, it's like the opposite kind of a career that someone like you, mm-hmm. who's afraid of their shadow almost, would go into, but somehow you were able to do it. And you do write that um, you never suffered from imposter syndrome because you always just felt you were an imposter. There was no syndrome. Yeah, you were I didn't in this, feel it, Roisin. Yeah. I knew it. I knew I was an imposter. It was a fact. Um, and, and I didn't tell, you know, the other students in Rap Minds that I had got in by default. It's funny since I wrote it. Two other students at the time have now told me that they actually got You're in by default too. Joking, One like, of whom hadn't even got the honour in English in the Leaving Cert, which was uh, the fundamental criterion to get yeah. in. But I love hearing things like that because I do feel like that wouldn't happen now. Like it's kind of, yeah. you know, there was more, if you were good enough, if you were able to show something, it didn't really somehow didn't matter. You could weave around those things. You know, I often think about when I was starting in the Tribune and I I was only in the Tribune for a week's work experience, but at the time there was no swipe cards. So I was able to just turn up again the following week, even though I wasn't supposed to be there. But it just wouldn't happen now. Like you wouldn't be able to walk in Maybe it shouldn't have happened then, but the point <laughs> is, here I am now because I, I, I was able to do that. And it's just, it, it just that lack of formality or that that ability to ring up the likes of Sean Egan or to weasel mm. your way into something was was more than you could. You can't do that now yeah. as much, I think. But it was a much smaller country too, much more intimate country, I suppose, in those days. True. Um, so you started off and um, you made you, you mentioned some friends of yours that you made. I think they're still your very close friends. Yes, now. we're lifelong friends yeah. and we go away, you know, oh, for lovely. a weekend every year together. And uh, yeah, we, we meet frequently during the year, even though we're scattered, uh, not just around Ireland, but one Anne Flaherty is living and has been living in London. And before that was in Hong Kong and before that was in South Africa. But our friendship has withstood all of that. And we're bonded by the love of what we do. Yeah. And, you know, just the common interests that we have in the world and current affairs and politics and mm. We could talk till the cows come home and never get to the end of a conversation. They're the most wonderful women, each of the four of them. Um, We shared a house, the five of us, when we were students in college. So there was Anne Flaherty, who I I mentioned, Maurice McDonough, uh, who writes for the Irish Times, a beautiful writer who lives in Sligo. Mm And uh, Mary Wilson, of course, yes. of, uh, of Morning Ireland fame. fame. Yeah. Morning Ireland now, yeah. And Bernie Neilaherta, uh, who spent her career working in the Connacht Tribune. So you all started together. And we you're all started all in the same year. Great um, friends. Yeah. It's lovely. And I must say, like, out of Rathmines as well, the likes of Alison O'Connor and Katie Hannon. So it, it was that kind of era of these great women journalists coming through there yeah. to, to do this only course and often coming from further, much further flung parts of Ireland yes. because they were following their dream. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a great... We were the, we were the five culchies <laughs> and our house was party central. Oh, really? <laughs> Brilliant. Now, it, it was, you described it there, the anorak and the dirty, yeah, the, the 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 press thing in the hat. It was a male dominated um, thing that you went into. I mean, in some ways, we can talk about it later. In the, in the senior echelons, it's still kind of like that. You know, there's still things that need to change. But back then, to be a woman in in a newsroom in journalism was 
to be this sort of outlier person. Yeah. And you do describe a couple of, a few moments of, um, I suppose, sexism, discrimination that you experienced because you, you as a freelance, you started to get um, good markings, you know, to go to these good events and write colour from them and all that kind of thing. And that caused a bit of resentment at yeah. the time. Finney Doyle, who was the legendary editor of the Irish Independent, he and Michael Brophy, who was the features editor, started introducing colour writing, which meant that instead of going out covering, a, you know, a fairly ordinary news uh, event, as in reporting style, you went out and you sort of wrote about the atmosphere and your observations. And it took me quite a long time to learn it. Michael Brophy taught myself and a woman called Liz Ryan how to do it. And Liz Ryan was a beautiful writer who went on to become a very productive novelist herself. And... Um, because it was fairly new in the Indo, we were given a really good platform, Liz and I. We were both freelancing. Uh, we were earning quite a bit of money and we were so busy we didn't have time to spend it. <laughs> <laughs> but we were also getting picture bylines and big space in the paper. So we were building a profile with the readers. And that didn't go down very well with all our male colleagues. Um, even though we were members of the National Union of Journalists because we were freelancers, we could not attend the union meetings in-house. And there was a union meeting at which a motion was passed barring us from the building. And the reason given was that the union wanted to establish that there was a need to create more full-time positions. Now, Liz and I could never understand how that was going to help mm. <laughs> at all. But what it meant for us was that we had to like go around the country, cover stories. These were the days before technology when you still had to, you know, phone in yeah. word for word your copy. Or if you were in town, you had to get home, type it up, then get a taxi to the door of the Indo. Hand it in, Hand it in to the security to man Ridiculous. at the door and then, and then leave. Now, it did peter out after about six months because it, it was crazy. Um, and then there was another incident. I remember we, Liz and I were both told that we were not to go down to the basement where the printing presses were because uh, there was a, a, a risk that we would distract the printers and the edition would be late hitting the streets. <laughs> I know when I when I say these things, I can hardly believe the words coming out of my mouth. And even Justine, just uh, you also mentioned, and I, I'm sure I saw it as well. It's just kind of was normalised. But you know, the pictures of semi-naked women say that would have been maybe on the walls in various newsrooms and things like that. Yes, that and and in the pages of the paper, like. Models draped over bonnets of cars. I remember going to the car show in the RDS and, and being embarrassed because there were like models in bikinis draped over cars and men in suits with briefcases <laughs> ogling them. And it was kind of, that was the way it was. And even your sort of vaguely knowing it was weird, but it was so normal. It's, it's those kind of things are yeah. fascinating. You also had a male colleague who uh, sort of appraised you as you walked down a corridor once. What did they? Yes. What did he say? Um, it was a colleague I knew to see. I don't think I'd ever spoken to him. I was walking ahead of him in the corridor. There was nobody else. I think I was going down to the expenses hatch 
And um, oh, then, the old expenses yeah, exactly. hat. She'd miss it, with wouldn't my you, Justine? Dockers, and you'd yes. get this little brown paper envelope stuffed with cash. Exactly. You got money. <laughs> there was always a huge queue. But this day, there was nobody there. And I was walking along the corridor and this colleague behind me observed aloud, Justine, you have a good figure, but you've no arse. Right. And I, to my shame, I kept walking. I said nothing. But you see, that was just what you did yeah. because you didn't want to also cause a fuss, mm. make a big deal of it. But yeah, amazing that he thought that that was something that yeah. he could just say. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In your 20s, going back to, again, this sort of timidation, so you're doing all this great work, you're out and about, you're clearly excelling at what you do. So it's like you said, you've never been afraid of people and that's, people is, is the lifeblood of, of yeah. journalism. So you were able to do that. But in your 20s, you did begin to have panic attacks that led on to your phobias that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were actually diagnosed with agoraphobia, yeah. which is, I suppose it's something you would still be, still say you have now yes. or so you couldn't you couldn't fly and you kind of had to develop all these strategies in your life to almost tame that inner mouse that, that's <laughs> very much there not even an inner mouse just the mouse in you like um, yeah. tell me about that time and coming to terms with with all of that and especially when you're doing a job which does involve you having to travel having to be around the, the world and, and that kind mm. of thing I had my first panic attack and I've heard other somebody else say this as well and I really identified with it. I had my first panic attack on a bus, sitting on a bus in O'Connell Street and suddenly thinking my heart was racing. I couldn't breathe. I could feel myself perspiring very heavily. I didn't know what was happening to me. And eventually I was freelancing at the time for a magazine called Aspect. It was set up supposedly to be the rival of McGill magazine, which it failed abjectly to be. (laughs) But um, I was living at home at the time and one night I was in bed and I got a really bad panic attack and I went into the bathroom and I started calling to my mother and when she came out I was lying on the floor and I said, I'm dying, I'm dying. And uh, she actually called the GP I'd say it was about two or three o'clock in the morning and the GP came up and he actually uh, prescribed some tranquilizers for me. And um, I realised then that I I had a problem. You know, this wasn't just still the timid me. This was a problem. And um, I developed various fears, fears of 
bridges, walking over bridges. I mean, it's crazy. Mm. Fears of being in a valley, that the mountains are going to fall on top of me. Uh, fears of using public toilets that I get locked in the, uh. the cubicle, that nobody will come and get mm. me out. Um, fears of elevators, which I still have. Mm. And then when my son was born, it got worse. And I think it was exacerbated because I felt I had to live for him. And if I died, this would be a catastrophe for him as well as for me. I stopped flying completely. The last time I flew before I stopped was when Pope John Paul II was going to Egypt and Vinnie Doyle uh, thought this could be his last trip because he was very ill at that stage with Parkinson's disease, as far as I remember. And um, Vinnie sent me to Egypt to cover that trip. And I was terrified because I was flying with Air Egypt and it wasn't long after one of their planes had crashed in New York, um, by, had been crashed by a suicidal pilot. So I was in total bits. And after that trip, I stopped fully flying. And then when my son was, uh, he was in a, a sports club and they were going to Spain on a, a trip and a parent or guardian had to go with each child. Okay. And my husband had recently had back surgery, so there was no way he could fly. So I had to go one way or the other. And I went to uh, an N NLP, is it Neurolinguistic Practitioner? Yes. Yeah. In private practice in a very uh, salubrious penthouse in the Docklands who charged me, I think it was £300 at the time and uh, told me that my fear had nothing to do with my father's sudden death. It was because an old woman had beaten me with her crutch. When, when I was four, she was sitting on the window ledge of the shop around the corner from my convent school and for no reason had started hitting me with her crutch. That was the reason. He didn't cure me, needless to say. I went straight to the GP and got Xanax and I'd, I started flying again. I went with my son to Barcelona. But I still have the uh, elevator phobia. But, you know, and you will know this. When you're working as a journalist, you just switch on to automatic pilot. And yes, the fear is there in your head. But the foremost thing is getting the story and being there on time and not being beaten by the rivals. And I am so grateful to journalism because it has made me live and it's brought me right to the edge so many times. You know, I covered the troubles um, frequently in the north and there were some very hairy times. I went to Lebanon and I, I look back now and I've had such a privileged life and I have these amazing stories to tell. And I wouldn't have had that if journalism hadn't made me move out of my comfort I zone. The, the way you put it... Um it was very good. You said journalism had made me dare to live. It kept shooting me out of my comfort yes, zone, like you say. That's exactly and what it did. It's so interesting that you got yourself into a career that was going to do that for you instead of, now not that Legs & Co would have been a, a comfort <laughs> zone, but you know what I mean? Yeah. You could have ended up just sitting in a room doing admin or something that was never going to propel you into these very challenging in some ways, but obviously ultimately successful experiences. Yeah. But something in you made yourself go there. Yes. And I, 
realise that I wasn't the only one who felt the fear. I've talked to other journalists now (laughs) and we've agreed that we all were propelled by the need to get the story and that you couldn't go back to your editor and say, I'm sorry, I was too frightened. <laughs> didn't do it. <laughs> Just wasn't going to watch. But also, I think it feeds into something that you discovered, maybe not at the very, very beginning of your journalism career, but there's a moment in the book where you talk about realising that it was all about making a difference. I had a similar moment like that one time when I wrote about... Um, I was I was freelancing here in the Irish Times at the very beginning and I wrote about a man, a traveller man actually, and just described his, his living space, you know, his accommodation. And I remember very vividly somebody sending in a cheque to basically sort out that man's situation. And I, I, it was the first time that I, not that that happens all the time, you don't often get cheques in the post for people saying, I want to fix this, but it was the idea that I'd written about something that was then going to have a material difference to this really terribly sad situation and the sort of joining those dots of that's the point of it. And you you have a similar sort of feeling and it comes to you at the beginning of your journalism career where it's about making a difference. And that was what was propelling you as well. Yeah, It sounds awfully pious and noble to say you're making a difference. But it's journalism true, makes a difference. Yeah. yeah. And without it, the world would be, you know, it would be unsustainable. Um, I had a, an experience a little bit like that. I did an interview with a young woman who had been really badly treated all her life and was in dire straits. She had, uh, you know, very serious psychological uh, consequences of that abuse. But she was also financially desperate and she was being evicted from her home. And at the time, the late Brian Lenehan Jr. was the Minister for Children. And I didn't know him very well, but I felt I had to do something for this woman. So I rang him and I explained to him that she was being evicted. She had no source of income. She was incapable of working to earn a living. And he immediately sorted out her living accommodation. He said to me, I don't want any publicity publicity about this. You know, and time and again, I have found that human beings are wonderful. Mm. Only the smallest minority are not. Mm. And when I hear people, you know, just ranting about politicians, I do try to make the point, you know, they're humans like us. And many of them are in there for the right reasons, not all, but many, and they're doing their best. And similarly, journalism comes on under a lot of criticism. You mentioned that in the book yeah. too. That there's a lot of cynicism, or there's, but there's, but at the heart of it, your experience and my experience would be people trying to do, trying to expose corruption, bad things that are happening in the world and making the place, the world a better place. That's yeah. the, at the heart of what a lot of our colleagues are mm. motivated by, I suppose. Idealism is kind of scorned these days, but I do find that is a common thread amongst journalists and I, I just think journalists are the best company. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> we do have some good nights out <laughs> yeah. and some scintillating conversation. Um We're going to go on to talk about some of your big stories, but I just wanted to mention someone not quite as nice in the political world that you have two interesting stories about, one relating to your mum and one relating to you, and it's about Mr. Charles Hawhey. Your mother, um, back in the day, went to him. Yeah, my my father was a Fianna Fáil councillor. And in fact, um, after he died, the local party came to my mother and asked her to stand 
for election. This was many years afterwards for the local elections. And my father was actually due to stand for the general election um, a year or two after he died. And um, when he died, my mother was landed with this, as I mentioned earlier, this huge tax bill uh, for death duties. And she spent a number of years trying to sort it out. And I remember vividly my sisters and I sitting in the car in Cork in the South Mall while she'd go to the accountant and she would come out red eyed and silent. And uh, you could see her anguish anyway, eventually. She knew Charlie Hawhey, you know, uh, through my father and they would have been in Dublin socialising with him. He was the Minister for Finance and she made an appointment to come up to Dublin to meet him, to ask him for help. Now, I know that was probably wrong, but we talked earlier about the, you know, the intimacy of Ireland at the time and things were done differently. It was very normal. It was normal and I'm not going to judge my mother for turning in desperation to him. So, still in her black widow's clothes, she came up to Dublin. She went into his office And he proceeded to chase her around his desk. And at one stage, the door opened and his secretary actually came in and he sat back down in the chair as if nothing was happening. And when the secretary left, he resumed his chase around the desk. And my mother left in tears and cried the whole way home to Bandon and went straight to her best friend, Mary Taff, to offload. And um, so that... That was what I knew about Charlie Hawhey, you know, apart from by the time then I got to Rock Mines, of course, I knew about the arms trial and I'd read the books. And um, then he became leader of Fianna Fáil in 1979, became Taoiseach. And so I was out for the Irish Independent working as a colour writer. And one September, I was sent on assignment to the Phoenix Park Races. There were motor races every September in the Phoenix Park, and it happened to be the Taoiseach's birthday, Charlie Hawhey. So I arrived up in the Phoenix Park, and there was a big marquee, and there was a very long table at the top of the marquee, and Mr. Hawhey was sitting at the centre of the table, and his acolytes were in serried rows in front of him, facing him. And I walked up and there was silence and I said, happy birthday, Taoiseach. And then this uh, hand clapping started and calls of give him a kiss. And um, I said to him, I think I said, did you get anything nice for your birthday? Because this was my assignment, colour. And he did reply and I jotted down whatever he replied and I fled from the tent. Exactly as my mother had fled from his office, you know, two decades earlier. Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah. But Roisin, at the same time, I feel very conflicted about Charlie Howey. I think because he was so um, terrifying to journalists when during his reign that there's a, there was a lot of guilt amongst journalists that we didn't, apart from Vincent Brown, probably, We didn't put the hard questions to him. He got away with an awful lot. So when the McCracken Tribunal came about and then the Moriarty Tribunal and his, you know, lavish spending on monogrammed Charvet shirts shirts and, uh, you know, know, dinners and the Pocardie. and and, mansions. Exactly. (laughs) And then our, you know, the newspaper 
uh, lawyers told us, look, his reputation is in tatters. You can hardly libel the man now. I think we overcompensated to some extent and demonised him. And I think he did some good and that has to be remembered too. Mm. Well, we do talk about the travel passes, his, wasn't it? Didn't yes, he bring it in? Yes. And uh, I remember because when I was growing up, we had butter vouchers because there was such a thing. And I think it was him that brought in these butter vouchers if you were from a poorer family and you needed help. You got these vouchers that you could bring and sometimes you brought butter with them, but lots of times <laughs> you brought whatever you needed and you went into your local shop. But there was things like that that he did yes. that um, should be remembered. But I suppose there was all that corruption and then not just corruption, but what he did, to, that kind of attitude towards women and that wasn't just him, I'm sure, as well. It, we know it was general uh, among lots of, uh, of men. Yeah. And speaking of men, you do a good thing in, in, the, in this essay where you list out all the really brilliant opportunities you've had for writing and a lot of them involve interviewing men, sometimes quite famous men. You talk about meeting George Best, uh, Tom Selleck, John McGahern, who I know you really admire as a writer. And so lots of these great experiences. Um, But you do write that uh, when you're listing out all these brilliant journalism encounters you've had, that a lot of those uh, people you interviewed were men, but that the most transformative um, moments of your career have been around women and girls. So I thought maybe for the final part of the interview, we could maybe go through that and talk about some of those from Christine Buckley to Vicky Phelan, Lavinia Kerwick to Catherine Corliss. Um, if you think about that journalism, if you, it starts really with, and I think that's the opening article, is Mary Robinson's election. That was a huge one and a huge moment. And just to remind people who mightn't have been our age, how seismic it was really that Mary Robinson was the president. This was massive. Probably the biggest thing that's happened politically as a, uh, for women in, in our lifetimes, isn't it? Mm. Well, considering women were half the population and yeah. it took until 1990 for a woman to become president was extraordinary. I can't recall the day that she was declared elected without smiling. <laughs> it was such a happy day. Yeah. And I remember being upstairs on a bus coming into town and looking out the window and seeing people smiling, men and women. And I remember men buying women red roses that day. <laughs> and it was almost as if the men were saying, welcome to our world at last. And I mean, she was such an amazing woman. There was never any tokenism about Mary Robinson, which was fantastic. She had been in the Shannon and in the law courts and had fought for women's rights and had changed society ever before she became president. Yeah. And, you know, she should have been the Taoiseach before she ever became the president. Um, so I chose that as the starting off point because for me, that was really a moment when Ireland started opening its eyes and opening its arms and becoming outward looking and tolerant. And I suppose what people would say is the liberal modern Ireland. Um, and it empowered other women. Women realised, you know, I have a story to tell and terrible things were done to me and other women. And it's about bloody time the rest of you knew about this. And so when people ask, have asked me over the years, who was the most impressive person you ever interviewed? I would often say, there's no point in me telling you because you've never heard of them. Right. Or, you know, these are women, largely, some men too, who were thrust into the national conversation against their will, um, found themselves making uh, headlines. 
um, because of various scandals, and then decided that they would tell their stories because they wanted to make it a better place for everybody else and to save other women coming up behind them from what they had endured. So when I think of the people that have made the biggest impression on me, I think of the still nameless people, the woman in the Kilkenny incest case, one of the most extraordinary human beings I have ever encountered in my life. The women and and, and some of the men as well, who were sexually abused uh, in the sport of swimming. I did a book on that and they were amazing. And actually at the launch of this book in Ireland, um, one of those women, Karen Leach, was at the book launch. And when she was at the launch of the swimming book, yes. she went public for the first time at that launch, said, my name is Karen Leach. I was abused by Derry O'Rourke, the national coach. I am no longer hiding behind anonymity. And since then, she's been travelling around the world, uh, giving uh, talks to sports associations and bodies about safeguarding children. So at the launch of An Eye in Ireland, she came up to me to sign the book and she said, Justine, I have got back into the swimming pool. For the first time in 30 years, that woman was amazing. Yeah. She came so close to the edge and she pulled herself back through sheer strength of character. And not only did she pull herself back, she pulled other women with her and has safeguarded so many children that we'll never know about. Yeah. I think about the, the men and women who were sexually abused by uh, Catholic priests and within the Protestant church, which we hear less about, yeah. Um, and of course, I think about all the great women whose names are out there. And Christine Buckley is just a hero to me. Um, Vicky Phelan, I did an interview with her very shortly before she died. We had become quite friendly. And uh, I sat with her in her kitchen in Limerick and to see the size of her first aid box on the wall, you know, and here she was still fighting the fight. If it wasn't for those women, and you think back to somebody like Bridget McCole, mm. a mother in Donegal who was being threatened by the state on her deathbed that if she didn't drop her legal case over the administration of um, contaminated blood product, that they would take her for every penny they had mm. on her deathbed. What a merciless, heartless, callous state we had. And it's citizens like the people I'm talking about who have dragged us into this much kinder Ireland and we owe them a debt we can never repay them. Yeah. And one of the stories as well going on about that damage done to people was the case of that woman who was 15 weeks pregnant and had clinically died but was being kept alive because doctors didn't know what to do around the Eighth Amendment. You write about that. You wrote about that at the time. I will never forget that. That was, that was macabre. Um, coming up to Christmas, this young mother, I think she was 27, yeah. she was pregnant with her third child and um, she had a brain hemorrhage and she was moved to a hospital in Dublin and kept artificially alive yeah. as doctors literally consulted Bunrot Naheran to see whether they were legally 
allowed to turn off the life support machine and decided they weren't. And her children were brought into her. And the description of her physical state by the doctors who went one after the other into the witness box. Uh, There was one point in that courtroom when everybody in the room was crying. Those children were brought in to see her and the nurses put lipstick on her and eyeshadow, eye makeup on her. And her father and the father of those children had to sit in court and listen to that on Christmas Eve. And uh, there are still people who will say, oh, that had nothing to do with the constitutional ban on abortion. It had everything to do with the Constitution. And the court recognised that. And I am sick and tired of the lies that have been put out and the distortions and the suffering that women went through. I remember leaving the courthouse that Christmas Eve, coming over the Liffey into Temple Bar and meeting somebody I dealt with frequently uh, on uh, church stories. And he was laden down with you know, carrier bags from Brown Thomas and full of the, you know, seasonal good cheer and wished me a happy Christmas. And I burst into tears. Mm. I said, you would not believe what I have just been listening to. Yeah. And you do say that this is a much kinder place and we did come through the referendum and we voted for, you know, women to never have to go through something like that again. And Miriam Lord says in the intro to your book something about you wouldn't believe the half of it and the other half you wouldn't want to believe. (laughs) You know, the country was a very, very different place. I'm just thinking, listening to you talking about the church there, um, your mother was quite religious, especially towards the end. What role has the church played in your life? Have you been conflicted around the good and the bad of that? Oh, yes. Yeah, I actually hung in there right through many of those uh, clerical abuse scandals that I was writing about. I had a granduncle who was an order priest who was with the Augustinians. Uh, Christopher McCarthy was his name. He was very elderly. He was my mother's uncle and uh, he was living in Cork. And when I would write these stories, he would drop me a line on a little card and say, keep up the good work. Don't be intimidated. Keep telling the truth. And he was... You know, if you met him, you would say he was the most orthodox priest <laughs> you could ever meet. So there were priests who wanted this to come out. You know, it was the institution. I tell the story in the book about when my uh, oldest sister, Bernice, was born, that my mother and father were summoned to the parish church, St. Patrick's, by the parish priest for uh the, you have to be churched. Yeah, to, to be churched. It happened yes. to my mum, I think, as well. Yeah, I, I think it was quite common mm. in those days. And when they arrived at the church, my father was shown to a pew in the centre aisle. My mother was brought to a side altar where this uh, service of purification was done on her after the dirty business of having given birth, which I think actually was the dirty business of having conceived. The birth had nothing to do with it, of having had sex. And um, my mother and my father were both so angry about it that they walked out and they said they would never go through that again. And they never did it after the births of the the other three daughters. But my mother did uh, remain true to the church. I remember early on when the scandals started coming out, she told me that she went to confession and she told the priest in confession that she was having a very hard time wrestling with her conscience that she was really up 
upset about what she was hearing. And do you know what the priest said to that this by now elderly, faithful woman? If you feel like that, go and join another church. God. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me yeah. though. That but you know what arrogance. the breaking point was for me? Well, that was it. <laughs> when they changed the liturgy okay. and they removed all references to her and she from right. it. I thought, this, uh, this is the last straw. Yeah. But one of the columns that you won your award for was actually about Grease Lock. And in that, you talk about the very good people and, and the, the strength people get from the community, from priests at these times. Yeah. So that those, those things can be still happening at the same time, I suppose, yeah. where you can be very aware of the bad and yet the good is still yeah. existent. But I think, again, it's a bit like, you know, I talk about the state has been very, very uh, callous, but the people have been very kind. I, again, I think the institutional church is without mercy in many ways, but the people in it mm. have great kindness. Yeah. Just before we leave it, I, I'm, I'm interested in... Uh, this change that's, that you've witnessed and the book is called An Eye on Ireland because you've had that eye on it. And I'm curious about now because we're not at this, um, you know, perfect place yet. There are still things for women and girls, particularly in Ireland, that we need to challenge. And so what is it that you still that still motivates you or areas of Irish life that you still think need um, to be uncovered and to be reported on? I think uh, immigration is... Uh, something that is going to come back to haunt us all. I think the way people who have come to live in this country have been treated is a scandal and we will be dealing with it and the next generations will be dealing with it. I think that the situation in Northern Ireland is very worrying and the absence of uh, a working executive there for so long um, and I think the lack of strong leadership, ex especially for young loyalist men. I recently read a book called Closer to Home by a, a young writer called Michael McGee, who has just brilliantly captured the sense of psychological trauma that is still there and is being passed on to generations and is not being addressed. I do believe there will be this new all-island Ireland in time, whatever it's called. And I do hope it happens because to me it just seems the natural way for this island to work at its best, mm. you know, economically, socially and everything else. Um, and when I travel to the north now, and it's so different in the old days, you go over the border and you go from, you know, potholed boreens and the Republic out beautiful, smooth <laughs> motorways in the north. Now it's the other way around. And I, I feel it's unfair, especially to people who are Irish citizens north of the border, that they are entitled to the benefits that the people mm. south of the border have had as well. Mm. So I suppose they're two... Immigrants and Northern Ireland are two things that worry me, you know, that they're not resolved and they need to be. And going back to, say, the Kilkenny incest case when that woman, you know, couldn't speak out and we don't know her name. Um, 
I'm very struck these days by these amazing young women who are coming out. They're in their maybe teens, they're in their early 20s that are waving their anonymity, that are telling their stories. And often we have them on this podcast, you know, and that is I feel like that's such that's the modern version of these women. And they're standing on the shoulders of that woman in the in the Kilkenny incest and Lavinia Kerwick and people who did it when nobody was talking about these issues. But the fact that they're so early after, say, their, their, could be their father's conviction or their brothers or they're coming out and they're talking about it and it's, I think it's changing things in a, in a massive way. I don't know if that's something that you're I struck by. I think the future is in good hands. I love the younger generations coming up and I would say that because I'm the mother <laughs> of one of them and um, he never fails to impress me. Um, I do think they are by nature much more open-minded than my generation was and that can only be a good thing. And they know how to use the mass communications well. Um, I think the age of, you know, the power of disinformation maybe uh, has reached its pinnacle and is on the wane because people are very aware of it now. And it's good to see, you know, misinformation correspondence being appointed. Um, I, I watch that on uh, the French TV channel and BBC World, and it's such an important service. So I think young people are very clued in. They might not be receiving their news and you know through the same fora that I did, but they're well informed and they do discuss what's going on and they care about the world. And I think the fact that they've travelled so much and travel is so normal for them that they understand how the world works much better than I did. Mm. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Justine McCarthy. I'd urge everyone to get this book, An Eye on Ireland, because whether you've lived through these stories, which many of us have, or you're younger and you're coming to them, it's such a great document of this massive changes that have gone on in this country and you write so beautifully it has to be said apart from anything else everything you write is a pleasure to read and I'm so glad that you're now a full colleague of mine in the Irish Times and to get to read you every Friday um, so thank you so much and uh, what's next what's the next book have you got any other plans <laughs> oh god I've only finished that one <laughs> next I'm moving into my new house <laughs> well, that's enough of a yeah. ordeal well thank you so much Justine it was a pleasure Roisin thank you that was Justine McCarthy there and the book is called An Eye on Ireland and I can really highly recommend it and actually it would make a great Christmas present for anybody who's interested in current affairs and interested in how Ireland has changed over the years. Isn't she just brilliant? Now, if you enjoyed this episode and the podcast, please leave us a review or subscribe to us. It really does make a difference. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan and by me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. Talk to us on social at IT Women's Podcast or email us the women's podcast at irishtimes.com that's it for me mind yourselves and i will talk to you next time hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.